0: Jesus, who came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, shouldn't be an offense to your new Jewish family. He's perhaps the answer that nobody knew they were looking for. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in a mixed marriage, have that conversation again. And don't listen necessarily to what anybody else told you. Do your own research. Dig into the scriptures, look at the history, and ask yourself the question, could Jesus in fact be the unifying factor here that we never knew existed?
1: Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host Carly Berna
0: and I'm Ezra Benjamin.
1: We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world and the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. If you're watching this season, thank you for joining us on YouTube. If you're listening, thank you for listening on your podcast app. We're on YouTube uh, this season, so like and subscribe to our channel there if you're interested. Um, today we're actually going to be talking about marriage. And last season Ezra, we did a couple of episodes on mixed marriages. You know what the, what that was like with a Jew and a Christian, or two Jews. Right, right. Uh, some really interesting, funny commentary on that. So if you missed that, go back and listen to it. Sure. Um, but today we're specifically going to be talking about demystifying the Jewish wedding.
0: Right. And, you know, I keep, as soon as I hear Jewish wedding, it's like hippocampus issue for me. I think of growing up watching uh, Meet the Parents with Ben Stiller, which is like classic. If you have one or two Jewish parents and that's your heritage and background. Uh, And I'm remembering Owen Wilson. I don't remember the character's name in the movie, but Owen Wilson, you know, lives in this incredible mansion and, you know, builds this uh, canopy for, for Ben Stiller to... To get married under, and he goes, I believe your people call it a hoopah, and it's like burnt in my mind whenever I hear Jewish wedding. I believe your people call it a hoopah. So anyway, today we're going to talk about the hoopah. I think that's actually kind of part of the title of this episode. Yep. And what the heck does that mean? And how do you really say it? And why does it exist? And and uh, all of that.
1: Yep, definitely. So before we get to talking about the Jewish wedding, we want to remind you that you can partner with us. um, And by doing that, uh, we will in turn send you some of our Lost Tribes coffee, which is from Ethiopia. We actually work in Ethiopia and we bring humanitarian aid and the good news of Jesus, Yeshua, to um, many different communities in Ethiopia. We've been working there for over 20 years. Uh, so you can get that information on our website, org. And if you stay tuned to the end of this podcast, um, there's a chance for you to win that coffee for free. So let's discuss.
0: What do you know about Jewish weddings? Yeah, I've actually
1: you. never been to a Jewish wedding. I've been Shame. to a virtual... Jewish wedding, someone that we know, Uh uh, I don't know, maybe five plus years ago, they got married. I think it was in Israel.
0: It was just outside Jerusalem. Yes. At sunset in the hills of Judea, actually, right outside the city of Jerusalem.
1: So for those of us who couldn't travel, we watched it on Zoom or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So I've only kind of, you know, seen that. So you
0: Skyped into a Jewish wedding. We'll give you partial credit. Jewish wedding. Partial credit.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, So I've obviously seen pictures, seen movies, which probably haven't given the best, uh, you know, insight. Sure. uh, And and heard some things. Um, So... Uh, I can, I'll ask you based on, you know, some of the things I've seen and heard kind of like the Hoopa thing, right. you know, to get the into hupa. that. Yeah. Um, you probably have been to many Jewish weddings, participating in your own.
0: I've been to a few, as you said. Yeah. Uh, some in the States, some in Israel actually, <clears throat> believe it or not, which was really cool and a different experience to be, uh, you know, at a kind of more rabbinic, traditional Israeli style wedding in the land of Israel. Uh, a few years ago probably almost 10 years ago now time flies and then my own personal experience marrying an israeli and putting together uh, a jewish wedding as believers in jesus that reflected both american ashkenazi jewish which means Mm -hmm. it's a fancy word for kind of northern european traditional jewish uh traditions from you know the old world Ukraine Belarus Poland and then also modern israeli traditions that my wife brought you know which is it can be anything it can be ashkenazi it can be iraqi it can be yemenite yeah. so it was a smattering you know and in our wedding because we have ethiopian friends uh you know there was ethiopian you know no no through the whole thing so I don't I don't our wedding was just sort of this international mishmash but it was awesome and it was very much a Jewish wedding so with those experiences in life I'll you know share that with our listeners today and we can unpack the Jewish wedding.
1: yeah Good. Well, I did Google Jewish wedding, and so I have kind of a a list of things that I don't know anything about, Um, and so you can tell me, you know, oh, this doesn't happen at all, or this does. Um, The first question I have is just, is there something specific you wear to a Jewish wedding? Like, if I was going, is it kind of like a normal wedding, or... Uh, When I say normal, I mean non-Jewish, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Or is there something? A Gentile wedding. Right, a Gentile wedding. Or is there something else?
0: No, I think it depends on people's particular tradition and their personality. There's not like a prescribed, this is what you wear. Often men will wear, uh, in almost any Jewish wedding, in fact, whether you're really religious or whether you're not, and even in the Jewish believing, the Messianic community, Mm -hmm. the groom is going to wear a kippah uh another term for that is yarmulke but yeah. it's that round head covering yeah and the idea there is to recognize that you are not your own ultimate authority mm-hmm. that the ultimate headship over you even though you're entering this covenant relationship where you're becoming the head of the house spiritually and in some of the big decisions and you're responsible for your for your wife and the children you'll eventually have you're you're not your own there's a headship over you and that's god himself mm-hmm. So as believers, of course, we also do that. I wore a kippah in my wedding, and it's to say I am under authority beyond myself, which when you're entering into this life-changing huge covenant is actually a comforting thing more than a restricting thing. So other than that, I mean, some people wear suits. Some people wear tuxedos. Israeli friends of mine got married in linen shirts and cargo pants, you know, just sort of to say this is is who I am, and I'm humble at the the hupa. I'm humble under this wedding canopy. I'm not trying to be anything more than I am, and we need the Lord to make this work. So, you know, I think you run the gamut. But is there some special thing that brides wear? Uh, No. Is white common also? A white wedding dress. Yeah, Yeah. brides maybe is more traditional to, you know, the Gentile wedding or a more typical wedding you'd see anywhere else. You know, a white dress is very typical and the veil. We'll talk about the veil in a minute. But other than that, it's anybody's guess what somebody's going to wear. It could be super formal or super casual.
1: Okay, so similar to a non-Jewish wedding, you know, people have all sorts of I've seen, you know, people wearing tennis shoes to obviously sure. totally dressed up. So. Sure. Okay. I also read that uh, there's some people fast before the wedding.
0: Yeah. You know, in, in Jewish tradition, seasons of feasting, of which a marriage, you know, in Bible times, a marriage— Uh, celebration would last seven days sometimes you know this incredible party in essence it was like the honor of the family to demonstrate through the extravagance of the feast how much they'd been blessed with Mm -hmm. so maybe not that way today maybe you know in New York City people still do that my wife's been to incredible like renting out Broadway theater you know gala weddings because the the family was Persian Jewish and it was part of their honor to throw this extravagant feast Uh, but uh, as I said, in Jewish tradition, sometimes before seasons of feasting come seasons of fasting. Mm-hmm. So often the groom or sometimes in more you know, ultra-religious Jewish circles, the bride as well, will fast. Now, does that mean they just don't eat? Some people fast like they fast on Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. which uh, in Jewish tradition, you don't eat any food and you don't drink any water. Mm-hmm. You consume nothing. And so people to recognize the the seriousness of the covenant they're entering into and yeah. to try to like engage with the Lord and humble themselves yeah. will either fast food or fast food and water. Now, huh. make sure you practi- don't pass out while right, you're standing. Exactly. At the- how practical is that before standing in the sun, you yeah. know, reading all these blessings in Hebrew, mm. you know, Jerry's still out. But yeah, uh, yeah, different people do that. Uh, and some don't, you know, for some it's a celebration all day. For others, it's a it's a time of really serious reflection and fasting before the the feast and the celebration of the wedding and the reception.
1: Yeah. Very different than I'm thinking of a friend of mine. I went to her wedding and we went and got in and out before the wedding. Right. So there was definitely feasting before the wedding instead of a fast.
0: Right. Well, that's my, my wife and I did a little bit of fasting before our wedding. But in Israeli tradition, you feed the guests because how could you not? Like, yeah. You got to get people a little bit tipsy and <laughs> very well fed before the ceremony or how could they possibly enjoy it? Uh, don't ask me how tipsy. So all these people came to us and said, oh, the food was wonderful. We loved the wine before the ceremony. And I said, must be nice. You know, I, yeah. I wouldn't know because yeah. I was in the back, you know, trying not to pass out. And yeah. anyway, but it was all worth it.
1: Okay. So the second thing, and there's some Hebrew words here that I'm probably just going to get wrong so you can correct me. Yeah. Um, bedekin.
0: Yeah, bedeken is is the idea of um, you know. Well, well, let me first say in in a non-Jewish wedding, how does the bride come down the aisle? She comes down the aisle with the veil on, right? Mm-hmm. And at some point in the ceremony, either you know before the you may kiss the bride, or once the rings on the finger, or, or once the once the vows have been said, the veil comes off, right? It's like okay, now this is this is it. But in Jewish tradition, it's the other way around. So the bride comes down with her parents, if they're living. She comes down, you know, mother on one side and father on the other, or a representative family member. And she gets left halfway down the aisle. She doesn't come all the way into the the chuppah, the chuppah, as Owen Wilson said, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the groom comes and meets her, and she has no veil on at this point. Or I should say, the veil is on, but it's not covering her face. Okay. Why? Uh, well, one of the reasons is if you remember the story in Genesis, Rebecca and Leah, right? That, that uh, Jacob gets tricked, gets tricked by Laban into marrying the wrong woman. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like even today, if the veil's off, you, you see who it is that, that you're marrying. And mm-hmm. the, other, the other interesting thing, maybe it's more uh, rabbinic tradition, but it's, but it's interesting nonetheless, is the groom takes the veil and he puts it over the bride's face and one of the things this represents is even though you're forming a covenant where you're becoming one you know the two shall become one you become one flesh there's still a distinction in identity which is important in jewish culture i think even you know In in the Judeo-Christian ethic that a lot of countries, including here in the U.S., has become really part of our own judicial system and our own thinking and our own laws. It's the idea that every person, male or female, is a distinct individual with rights and identity, Mm -hmm. that you don't lose your identity when you get married. You're joining your identity with another person in oneness, but you're still your own. And so the groom puts the, the veil over the bride's face and says, I recognize that you are a distinct individual who's joining herself to me. So a lot more we could say about that, but it's, it's just sort of you know, interesting. People who attend Jewish weddings for the first time go, wait a minute, this seems backwards, but those are, those are some of the reasons.
1: Got it, okay. So then the chuppah, Yeah. what is that?
0: The hoopah. so I'll say it in Hebrew with full phlegm. All right, it's a good thing you're sitting a few feet away yeah. from me, Carly. So chuppah, chuppah is, is, is a canopy. So why the canopy? It can signify a couple things. Uh, A hoopa has typically four poles. It's usually, you know, it can be decorated with flowers or it can be made ornate. But the structure itself is kind of humble. You know, it's wood posts. Uh, My wife and I use just birch wood kind of posts. Uh, These four posts that hold up uh, a sheet. So let me talk about first just the structure itself. The idea is, remember, the groom goes down meets the bride, puts the veil over her face, comes back down the aisle with her and they enter the chuppah together. So the groom starts there alone, but then he goes and gets the bride and he brings her under the chuppah. So in essence, it's symbolic of saying that the groom built the house and when it's ready, he's going to get his bride and they're entering this new uh, canopy of covenant relationship together. Mm -hmm. So literally he's bringing her into his own house. He's prepared a dwelling uh, a canopy, a covering for her, but then also symbolically, and in the eyes of God, they're coming together under the covering of this covenant. And in many Jewish weddings, if not most, uh, the canopy that's sort of, you know, between these four poles and these cross beams, you have this semi-translucent uh, fabric, and very often it's the groom's own talit. Okay, I said a fancy word. What's a talit, Ezra? Well, I'm glad you asked, Carly. It's the prayer shawl. So if you've seen Jewish men, uh, when they pray, they have this kind of big piece of fabric uh, with tassels on the ends wrapped around their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Or even sometimes, if they're really intense in prayer, we'll put it over our heads and just shield ourselves from everything except that kind of intimate moment with the Lord. And so the, the prayer shawl, the, the garment of prayer and praise that the groom has worn in his lifetime, in his own relationship with God, becomes the canopy covering. So the idea is my relationship with God and my recognition of his holiness and my need to pray and seek his favor and seek his face become the very covering of this covenant relationship that I'm making. And a lot more we could say about the chuppah, but that's the idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost every Jewish wedding you're in, if it if it doesn't kind of completely throw out tradition and do its own thing, is going to have a chuppah. And that's what's going on. Uh, inviting into the home, inviting under the covering of Of covenant relationship and that that true shield and covering is the groom's own relationship as the spiritual head of the house with the Lord.
1: And so at this point, is this where the circling occurs?
0: Great question. So yes, so once they're under the chuppah, something else kind of odd in the Gentile world perhaps uh, to a visitor, odd to a visitor to a Jewish wedding happens, but it's in almost every Jewish wedding. The bride will circle the groom uh, either in silence or while there's music playing, between three and seven times. So what's going on here? A couple things. One is that the bride's train is usually getting completely caught up around the groom's feet, and it's super awkward, and nobody really knows what to do. Anyway, it's, it's a moment, but it happens in every Jewish wedding, so we're all used to it. So while the three to seven circling is happening, uh, what we're remembering is a couple things. In essence, the bride is now making a statement to the to the uh, to the witnesses of the wedding, to the onlooker, he's mine, which is kind of interesting. I mean, you know, but that's that's appropriate for a marriage, appropriate for a wedding. She's in essence marking the lines of she's surrounding him and saying, as we're entering into this relationship, like Psalm Song of Solomon says in Hebrew, "Ani le dodi dodi li," which is, "I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine, mm-hmm. and my beloved is mine." That she's saying, this is now. Uh, this man is now one with me. He, he belongs to me. And the other thing that's happening, maybe more symbolically, but I think it's cool imagery is almost like the children of Israel uh, marched around Jericho seven times and then the walls fell. As the bride is marching around her groom seven times, she's breaking down the walls of his heart. Mm-hmm. So when this covenant making ceremony finally begins after the circling and the rabbi who's officiating the, the ceremony calls things to order, uh, she's already broken down any resistance he would have emotionally to coming into covenant with her. So it's a very cool thing. It's it's uh, fun and awkward and teary and, you know, all of the above.
1: So before I go on, as you were talking, I was just thinking, do most Jewish people who attend a Jewish wedding know the meaning behind all of these things, like you're explaining?
0: You know— uh... Some do, and some would say, my wife and I watched Fiddler on the Roof this past week because she watched it as a kid and had this nostalgic thing. So we just watched it. And how does the movie begin? Why do we do what we do? Why do we eat how we eat? Why do we dress how we dress? I can tell you in one word, tradition. So whether, whether Jewish guests at a Jewish wedding know all of this, the, the symbolic, the deeper meaning behind mm-hmm. these things that was developed over millennia or comes from the Bible, or whether they just know that this is what happens because it's tradition, Hard to say. I think it's going to depend on the wedding guest. Yeah. But these elements, even if people don't understand necessarily why, are certainly expected and welcomed in the Jewish wedding.
1: Got it. Okay. Uh, so next is ketubah.
0: Yeah. Good. That was a very American pronunciation. <laughs> that, thank you for that. No, that was good. Most people say it that way, even in the Jewish community. Yeah. So ketubah uh. or ketubah, as we say. You know, yeah. If you're a New York Jew, you say the ketubah. And if you're an Israeli who actually knows how to say the word, you'll say ketubah. So what is a ketubah? It's literally a publicly presented contract. Now, is marriage a contract only? No. We understand that it's more than that in the eyes of God. It's a covenant. I think even if a Jewish person doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah, if you have any recognition that there is a God, you know that he actually exists and he's the God of our people forever, then you'll recognize it's more than a piece of paper it's a covenant, but the piece of paper is signed by the bride and the groom, either right before or right after the ceremony, and signed by the rabbi and by two witnesses. Mm -hmm. So it's in essence, this covenant has been witnessed uh, by one vested with the spiritual authority to invite the couple into it, and by witnesses chosen by the couple. And then you hold it up to all the guests. And it's in Hebrew, so most people, you know, in a Jewish wedding in America have no idea what it says, but you hold it up and say, "We're, we're declaring to the witnesses, to the community that we have entered into a covenant and really a contract together. So what's the language of it? It's what's required of the bride and it's what's required of the groom. So. My wife, as I said, is from Israel. She had ours made in Jerusalem, and it's very beautiful, but I wasn't there. And so one of the things that she said is required of the groom is, by the way, if this covenant ever ends, Ezra owes me $12 million. (laughs) Like, it's in there. It's in Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew. Yeah. This number that's pretty long, Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew. And I'm like, what does this mean? She said, well, I just took the date of our marriage and turned it into a numeric amount. So if you ever leave me 12... So anyway... That's She's a lawyer so, uh she, she yeah. is an attorney. So that was a nice move. I should have read the fine print. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. I agree nonetheless and I wholeheartedly agreed. Uh but, you know, so the, the Ketubah is the requirements of the of the marriage.
1: Is that similar to like vows at a gentile wedding?
0: The vows? Yeah, I mean the vows also happen in a Jewish wedding and that's mm-hmm. a great question. But this is really saying that the covenant isn't to be taken lightly. Um, you know, I guess in in Civil weddings, right? We have this marriage certificate, and there's yeah. not necessarily terms, but you're saying, I'm signing, agreeing that my status as a person here has fundamentally changed. I'm mm-hmm. no longer single. I'm in this relationship that cannot easily be broken. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, even historically in Jewish tradition, it was the same idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, Now again, you know, you see in the Old Testament the idea of, if there's a problem with your wife under these conditions, sign a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, in New Covenant Judaism, recognizing that God exists and that he sent Yeshua to redeem us from our sins and to reconcile us to him, and that a covenant is holy in the eyes of God, it's not about the contract, it's about this holy union that you're entering into, but nonetheless... Uh, signing on the dotted line and saying, I'm declaring to the community I no longer belong only to myself is still very important in Jewish tradition.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah. So at this point or at some point in the wedding is what probably the only Jewish word or phrase most people know, which is mazel tov.
0: Right. So that happens right after another thing we'll mention and that thing to end the wedding ceremony. You've said your vows, you've exchanged the rings. There's these seven Hebrew blessings that we won't get into in detail today that guests or family members come up and bless the couple with. And one of those blessings includes, um, you know, if you know your Bible and think of Bible times, this will resonate with you. The groom actually holding a glass of wine to his wife's lips and she takes a sip. Mm. And it's saying, with this sip, you're entering into covenant with me. This is your acknowledgement and consent to enter into covenant. All of that happens. And then the groom, you've seen this in so many movies, right? It's like stereotypical, but it happens in every Jewish wedding. Somebody puts a glass down. If the person hates the groom, they're gonna put like a thick bar glass, like a real, you know, those old, anyway, eight sided. And if they like the groom, they're gonna do like a crystal wine glass. So it's easy to stomp, but it's wrapped up usually, or just left you know, alone on the floor and the groom stomps this glass. And then they say Mazel tov. But why is he stomping a glass? And there's a couple things that we remember. One is that the temple in Jerusalem, right? There's been two temples in Jewish history, Ezekiel and parts of the New Testament talk about a third temple that's yet to be built before the return of Jesus. More on that in another episode. Uh, still doesn't exist as of 2022 in Jerusalem. But there's people who want it to. So we remember the sadness of the destruction of the temple, that in essence, we're living without uh, the the biblically prescribed God-ordained sacrificial system in our Jewish culture and and religious practice. So that's one thing we remember. But the other thing, maybe even more relevant to all of our audience to remember, is that a covenant is like a glass. And if you break it, you can't put it back together easily, or maybe even at all. Mm -hmm. And so it's this serious moment where you're, you're, when the groom's stomping that, he's saying a covenant is like a finely crafted crystal and it's easily broken and not easily put back together. Mm. And so it's just this solemn moment, but then the groom crushes that glass under his foot and that's the end of the ceremony. And uh, then everybody shouts per your question, Mazel tov. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? It's really Hebrew for congratulations. Uh, that's what it means. And then immediately it's like sudden you know, change of scene and music usually starts and there's dancing and there's eating and there's more drinking, has yeah. to be more drinking, just saying. Uh, and then the big ceremony starts, you know, it's, it's, it's party time. But that's the end of the wedding ceremony, the breaking of the glass. Bride, excuse me, groom kisses bride if he doesn't forget. And I can't tell you how many, before we got married, my wife said, don't you dare forget to kiss me after you break the glass, because the groom's so relieved that this whole ceremony yeah. and all the Hebrew and the blessings are over, and I hope I don't cut my foot open when I crush this glass. That it's like, okay, praise the Lord, I'm done. You yeah, know? Uh, and then he forgets. And I've seen so many YouTube videos. Like I had to watch them. It was part of maybe brainwashing <laughs> before the ceremony, yeah. so I would be aware of it. Of grooms crushing the glass, Mazel off. and then the groom goes and hugs his buddies, oh. and the bride is like, uh, "Hello." Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that did not happen. I remember. That's good, thankfully. But That's what happens.
1: So one of the other things I read was that people give gifts in increments of $18.
0: Yeah, we can call this like the bonus round, Carly. So what's the deal with 18 in Jewish culture? 18 uh, letters in Hebrew, backing up a half a sentence, letters in Hebrew carry a numeric value. So often, like if if you look at a, if you're in Israel and you're looking at a calendar, it's not going to say like uh, numbers for the year 5782, okay, on the Jewish calendar, it's gonna have a series of Hebrew letters that carry that numeric value. And so uh, the word chai, which means life, like to life, mm-hmm. l'chaim, right? Another fiddler on the roof thing, but whenever you, you know, toast somebody in Jewish culture, you don't say you know to our health or cheers, you say l'chaim, to life. And so chai, uh, those two consonants in Hebrew, those two Hebrew letters are also the numeric value 18 when they're placed together. Okay. And so 18 means uh, life, yeah. which in Hebrew, in, in Jewish culture is often the biggest value is the preservation and the abundance of life. Every human life is of individual, unique, precious value to the community and as well to God. And so gifts in increments of 18, we got a couple of those at our wedding. I won't tell you how many zeros there were or were not <laughs> after the number 18, doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, less than I would have liked. But uh, anyway, the number 18 uh, was to life. That's what it's saying is may your wedding, may your covenant, may your, your marriage and your family be filled with life. May God bless you with life.
1: Got it. Yeah. I love how there's so much meaning behind everything, sure. or at least understanding it. Um, but to those listening to our, especially our Christian audience, you know, they might be saying, great, now I understand this, but wh- right. how is this really applying to my everyday life? And why should I really care?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, part of what we're doing in this podcast, Carly, is trying to bridge a gap between the Christian, either the Catholic, evangelical, Anglican, high church, low church, whatever you want to call it, community, and this Jewish community that sort of we look at each other across the aisle of faith sometimes, even the Jewish believing community to the evangelical community and go, I don't know how to relate to you, and I don't understand what you're doing. So I'm just going to kind of disengage, mm-hmm. or pretend you don't exist, or just smile and never really take the time to get to know. So as much Much as we challenge the Jewish listener to Uh, not accept maybe what they've been told their whole life, that the Christians hate you and the church is fundamentally opposed to the Jewish people and uh, the gospel is not for you, Jesus is the God of the Christians. We're also challenging our Christian listener to say, hey, look again at this culture, this Jewish tradition, Jewish faith, Jewish people, Jewish colleague, Jewish extended family member that you haven't understood. And perhaps if we could understand more and have a more informed dialogue, we could get somewhere together in our understanding of life, in our understanding of what happens after we die, in our understanding of is there a God and who is he, and what does he really require of mm-hmm. us? Uh, what does he require of Israel, and what does he require of, of uh, those from all the nations? So that's part of what it is, is the Jewish wedding, I think, has so much biblical symbolism that I hope is meaningful to Christians who, you know, should they do a Jewish wedding? Probably not. That would be weird. (laughs) Would they want to incorporate some elements? I I have lots of uh, Christian friends who have taken elements of the Jewish wedding and incorporated them because they found it so meaningful. Mm -hmm. So that's one application. But the other is, hey, I hope you get invited to a Jewish wedding, and when you do, you may know more than the Jewish person sitting next to you, not just what's about to happen, but why is it happening. And that can, that can prompt an awesome dialogue. You know, sometimes just showing that you cared enough to learn a little bit about somebody who's different than you can go a long way in a relationship and a meaningful dialogue. So that's the idea.
1: Plus, I think it was our first episode this season where we talked about the Pew survey. And how many mixed marriages there are between Jews and Christians. You're
0: right. And so, exactly. The Pew survey on the American Jewish community, uh, demographics of the American Jewish community, came out in 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was conducted in 2020, actually, and then the results came out, I think, in in 2021. But anyway, I digress. One of the fascinating to me statistics, maybe interesting to our listeners, is that as of 2020, over 50 percent, of Jewish people, meaning they have a Jewish parent or grandparent, and they identify as Jewish. Over 50% of those people in America uh, are marrying non-Jews. So, what we call mixed marriages or intermarriage, but that—that's a way of saying one spouse is Jewish and one is not. So, why? Wh- what's the relevance of that? Well, as we talk about a Jewish wedding, over half of American Jews are in the dilemma of okay. I've identified to whatever degree I have with my family and my history and my religion and my ethnicity. Now I'm marrying somebody who doesn't carry that background. What do we do about the wedding? What do we do about having a marriage and starting a family? And how do we raise our kids? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are major issues uh, that all of a sudden faith and heritage and even ethnicity and you know religious practice become maybe more important than they were to us as as single men and women. And so... Uh, my encouragement to our listener, whether you have a Jewish background or whether you have a Christian background, is if you're in relationship or even in marriage with somebody who uh, is not Jewish if you are and they're Jewish, if you're not, is consider the possibility that perhaps the Lord didn't set you up to be diametrically opposed to each other. Perhaps the Messiah promised to Israel the one who came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, namely Jesus, who died according to the scriptures and was raised according to the scriptures and was witnessed by many after his resurrection, that perhaps he, who is also the savior of all the world, might be the way that somebody not from a Jewish background and somebody from a Jewish background can have some, some synergy and some shared understanding and really, most importantly, shared faith and worldview and outlook about this life and what happens after we die Mm -hmm. and bring those things together. And I think there's more and more, Carly, of an interest, and that's part of why we're doing this podcast. Among mixed marriages, among people who uh, have one Jewish parent but weren't necessarily raised that way, what do I do? And now do I have to choose between Jesus or being Jewish? No, it's a false choice because I believe, and unapologetically I'll say today and continue to say that Jesus' belief in our Messiah and embracing him is the fulfillment of our identity and destiny as Jewish men and women, not a departure from it. And for the non-Jewish listener, if you're married to a Jewish person, Jesus, who came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, shouldn't be an offense to your new Jewish family. He's perhaps the answer that nobody knew they were looking for. Mm -hmm. And so I want to encourage you, uh, especially if you're in a mixed marriage, have that conversation again. And don't listen necessarily to what anybody else told you. Do your own research. Dig into the scriptures. Look at the history and ask yourself the question, could Jesus in fact be the unifying factor here that we never knew existed?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good a good recap for those listening. Um, even just to have more information about a Jewish wedding in case they are invited or right. they're planning their own. Right. Um, so uh, thanks for sharing all of that. Sure. And uh, now we can also understand Owen Wilson's.
0: The hoopah. Uh, yes. Now you know. The Exactly.
1: Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, you can enter for a chance to win our Lost Tribes coffee. You can do that by texting JG to 474747, uh, or you can go to our website, a Jew and a Gentile You can find more of our episodes on our website or subscribe to this podcast on any of the podcast apps. Watch us on YouTube. Um, Share this content with anyone you know that you think would be interested. And as always, you can submit questions to us that we'll answer in the episodes as well. So thanks for listening to another episode and join us next week. This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.